Church podcast. Joining us today is my new friend Colin Hansen. And Colin is a guy that uh, I've kind of known from afar for many years. He's worn a lot of hats that I'm aware of um, at the Gospel Coalition and as an author of numerous books and also friends of a really good friend of mine. Um, so I'm look, really looking forward to this discussion. Um, Colin, thanks so much for joining us. I really, really appreciate it. Oh, I'm excited to be here. Excited to to chat. Yeah. So, just tell us a little bit about who you are, man. Give us a thirty thousand foot view of what makes you tick, or you know, your family, where you live, yeah. how you got to be where you are, any of that stuff. Let's start from now and let's work backwards. So, <laughs> uh, my title for the Gospel Coalition, which is a ministry that serves to build healthy churches, train pastors, basically. Yeah. Uh, so um, I serve as the vice president of content and editor-in-chief, which means I'm responsible for our books and articles and conferences and things like that that we do for church leaders. And I live in Birmingham, Alabama, wife Lauren. I've got uh, two kids with a third on the way, kids at six and three years old. Um, I am, yeah, having my we're having our third kid as I'm 40 years old, so that'll be fun. Wow, wow. Be one way to put it. Um, yeah. But um, we're excited to, excited to meet this little guy, and excited for him to join our family. And uh, you know, I've been working basically in this role uh, for the Gospel Coalition since 2010. Before that, I was um, at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago. Before that, Christianity Today magazine. And before that, of interest to your listeners there in Madison, Wisconsin, I was uh, about three hours down the road in uh, Evanston, Illinois, okay. at Northwestern University. Okay, so, awesome. Grew up in South Dakota. Then there's really? here all the way back to the beginning, 18 what, years in South Dakota. What town? Well, you know, um, I didn't grow up in a town, so I grew up <laughs> five miles outside of a town of 250 people called Chester, South Dakota. So you grew up on a farm? Southeastern. I did, yes. So I was, uh, yeah, I mean, Star Greenhand, FFA, 4-H, you name it, that was that was me. Wow, the starched, starched jeans. Oh, yeah. I mean, you got you to have the uniform there for, uh, I mean, I, I was not like cowboy or anything like that. Um, that was not my culture. It was just more regular farm. That whole diaspora of Minnesota, <laughs> Northwest Iowa, yep. South Dakota, yep. North Dakota. I mean, yep. all just kind of the same thing. So I was it never is. cowboy hat, belt buckle, boots, all that kind of stuff. I was just uh, out there trying to trying to chase cattle and hope they didn't run me over. Yeah, that's good, man. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in Cedar Falls, Iowa, which is a, a town of, you know, 50,000 people with college students um, when they're in session. But, you know, the whole surrounding area is just farm culture. So, you, you know, yeah. you get you get farm culture. Like you said, it's it's all kind of the same, and especially I think, it, like you said, with the history of immigration to the United States, you know. Yeah. So tell us, but I always like to ask this, um, and I think it's really encouraging for our listeners you know, just to remember that God still converts people. 
and uh, you know it's easy sometimes yeah. it's i mean if I a pa- as a pastor i should you know i shouldn't feel that way but but sometimes you forget that um so it's encouraging to hear people's conversion stories and mm-hmm. you know what can you tell us about how you um came to know the lord I grew up in the United Methodist Church. In fact, my family goes back to, um, well, Wales and then eastern South Dakota, and, or eastern Wisconsin, sorry, I meant to say, so not far from Madison, actually. And they were Welsh Calvinistic Methodists. But by the time, you know, all those revivals going back to 1700s and everything. But by the time it came down to my family, it was kind of an obligatory thing. It was about morals. Um, nobody was particularly excited about that. So as a child, I remember sitting in church thinking, I'm so glad that when my generation gets older, we are going to stop all of this stupid charade of church. And then I saw something different for the first time in my life. I saw peers of mine as a teenager who were excited about Jesus. And that just didn't make sense to me, but I was intrigued by it. So I tagged along to a spiritual retreat weekend kind of thing with them at a Lutheran church, not a Lutheran movement, but at a Lutheran church. And I was just put off by all of these people who seemed way too happy. Hmm. Um, That was not my vibe. So way too happy, way too friendly. Did it seem inauthentic to you? Yeah, well, not not necessarily. It just seemed, I just didn't understand why everybody was so happy. (laughs) That was that was the thing. I don't remember just being. I don't know. It's just weird. It just yeah. hadn't been around people like that. I got before. you. I got you. And um and that was that. And there's a picture taken of me right at the beginning of this retreat. I just look so miserable. Yeah. <laughs> I look so angry. But by that time, I mean that was by the end of this weekend. That was really the the Lord just melted my heart. I don't. You know. I wish I could say I, I understood the gospel in all of its different dimensions at the time, but. Basically, I just knew that um, I wanted to walk in grace and joy, and the mm-hmm. Holy Spirit had changed me, and that was 15 years old. Yep. And it's just that's been the case ever since then. Yeah. Nothing. Nothing. I mean, it's just that was it was a very decisive shift to the point where my parents were rather confused and concerned, um, but I just remember having this um, incredible joy and and. Um, just grateful to God for that for that work. It really was a a supernatural thing. Uh, since then, my parents have uh, been baptized, come to faith. My brother, um, seen a lot. Met my wife, had a pretty dramatic conversion. I didn't know her at the time, but so I'm. I, I mean, I feel the way you do a lot of the times that oh, God can't really save that person, Kenny. Right, and right. of course, I was that person. My wife was that person. So what did I mean, your parents we're think? We're all that person. Yeah, exactly. What, what did your parents think? Were they put off by you, your conversion, or what did they think? Well, they were in the same boat as me, that they understood church to be this obligatory thing that everybody is miserable about, and God is the last thing you would ever, ever, ever in your life want to talk about. So that was just the confusing part to them was, okay, I thought we were all on the same page about this whole church thing. (laughs) We know we got to go, but we don't have to like it. It's like Midwest culture of like everything's private and we don't talk about God and everyone's just nice. Yeah. And, and, and churches is something you do as part of an upstanding member of a community. And the only people we thought in church were truly weird were the people who would sit up front and actually want to be there. Yeah. 
rest yeah. of us was, I mean, just find any excuse of, I've just got to go to the bathroom now and I'm going to come back in 25 minutes right? <laughs> right. when the service is over, right? that kind of thing. So, yeah, so they, they were just, they were just confused. But my parents have always been very supportive of me, even if they don't really understand what I'm doing. Yeah. And so eventually they came around as this was something they were supportive of, even though they did not share that faith themselves at the time. Mm-hmm. But now... They've had their own journey of, yeah. of coming to faith. Yeah, so it's it's been it's been a dramatic change for them uh, as well in their own ways. But yeah, it's I that's just the the power of God. He's he was doing that in the nineteen nineties, and he's still doing it today. Yeah, Amen, Amen. Well, I want to talk to you about the nineties um, and your book, <laughs> The Young, Restless, and Reformed. Sure. Um, but before we do that, I really want to ask you a real current question, because I think I know you've thought a lot about this, especially as it relates to the Gospel Coalition. And and you're, I think you're um, engaged in, in this way more than someone like me is. Um, but it seems that the Trump phenomenon in the last four years, increasingly in the last year or two, has really created a splintering of people that in the last decade may have thought themselves united. And it seems from my limited vantage point that the Trump phenomenon has been like a bomb has gone off and, and it's, there's a splintering effect where, you know, gospel coalition used to be aligned with all this stuff or Southern Baptists and what happens there, or, you know, all these different things. Um, am I onto something there? Uh, do you think that's correct? And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, let's, um, yeah, just think about what it's like, you know, this to be a pastor in Madison, Wisconsin, and to be in Madison, Wisconsin, in the middle of a state that in 2016 was the center of the universe. Right. I mean, just changed world history Mm -hmm. by a few people's decisions in, in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. And so you could, you know what it's like to be a pastor in that environment and what it means to keep the gospel central, to keep people focused on the gospel at a time when people are feeling so anxious, they're feeling so concerned, frustrated from a multiple different perspectives. Right. Okay. Well, drop somebody with your exact same beliefs into rural Texas mm-hmm. and perspective on the world just looks totally different yeah in that place um i mean i i spent uh, those those college years in in evanston illinois and really grew in my faith along you know a lot there and i now live in a community where 74 percent of voters went for president trump in his re-election right just different conversations mm-hmm. with people and so what we're seeing is that as the conditions of public faith change where where people have different perspectives on what's necessary uh, in terms of our culture, our politics, views on racial issues and things like that. I don't actually think we were ever agreed, this Young Earth Reform Movement, I don't think we were ever agreed on those things. Right. I don't think there was ever, oh yes, every single person who's signing up to this sees culture and politics the exact same way. Right. Just wasn't wasn't the but case. But Trump is the one that exposed it, right? Sure. And and also 
it looked a little bit different under President Bush's administration mm-hmm. and then a little bit different under President Obama's administration. Different issues in both cases. I mean, the Gospel Coalition came about in part as a reaction to politicization of the evangelical church during the Bush administration. Hmm. So straight from the Bush administration, concerns about the religious right distracting from the gospel, straight into the Obama administration, which is when I started. And that was a lot of just concern about what it means to be a faithful witness to the gospel in the midst of a, of a culture that is on sexual issues in particular, changing dramatically. Right. I mean, I Rapidly. think it is hard to undersell Right. How, um, I mean, just shocking that was. Now, think about it. That's a unit. Sexual issues were a unifying issue mm-hmm. for people within the reformed community, even I mean, from Madison, Wisconsin, down to rural Texas. Right. Now, President Trump comes along. And first of all, you deal with the accusations about uh, about uh, sexual abuse and things like that. But still, it's against the backdrop of nobody thinks this guy's going to win. Right, right. And then he wins, and that's still shocking. Yeah, I remember that and, night getting up the next morning. I, I, I couldn't stay up to, to watch the results. Right. And I got up the next morning, opened the laptop, and I was just like, I couldn't believe it. Yeah, and then it's, and it's, and it's Wisconsin that's right. decisive right. in this. And then, and then fast forward to, oh, okay, so now every single moment of every single day, the president of the United States is saying something or doing something or people are reacting to this. And so what you've seen in the last three years really is just those differences that were always there coming out. But beyond that, you've also seen that President Trump himself had a kind of radicalizing effect in part right. because every president's reelection strategy is to divide people. Mm-hmm. That was President Obama. That's for that's for sure. That was President Bush in mm-hmm. 2004. So sure. that's not a surprise. So you just know that's how reelection campaigns work. And so you saw this last time, a president whose goal was to try to divide people against each other, which again is every president's goal in re-election, and using the church as an explicit weapon to do that. Yeah. Well, I mean, not a, not a surprise we're in this position right now. The the um, White House is a pretty big bully pulpit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it just seems like we're living in these times that 100 years from now, um, people are going to be talking about, you know? Like my, you know, my great grandkids will read about this in the history book. Like when we we have COVID, we got George Floyd. That my prediction is he's kind of a, an, a our modern day Rosa Parks. You know, in some sense of how history yeah. might look upon our time. And then you've got the Trump phenomenon, and it's like feels like we're living in history that will be remembered. Wait, did you even say COVID there? I did say COVID. Yep. Okay. Okay. Sorry. I'm, I'm, yeah. It was. The, it's it's, it's like hard the, to keep track. So it's yeah, three, racial it's, issues. Yep. Political issues and then COVID and the, the COVID. pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. All of those hitting, I, you and I both lived through 9 11. Right. 9 11's disruption, even including uh, economically, even including the wars, I don't think came close to, I shouldn't say came close, but was not the disruption that COVID was. Right. And is. Right. Still, uh, today. I agree. I agree. Um, 
Do you think that there's any putting the genie back in the bottle when it comes to what the Trump phenomenon has, seems like it's initiated in our Christian culture in the United States? Great question. Love to answer that question because it gives me an opportunity to talk about what I think is happening underneath the issue. So there's one way uh, to look at these issues, and that's to say all of these contingencies, this happened and this happened and this happened. And if a few votes in Wisconsin had gone a different way, then maybe this happens over here. Sure. All of that is absolutely true. There's no genie putting back in this bottle. But what if we actually look underneath the issue and let's track back these 20 years? Let's think about this. 20 years ago, maybe you and I as precocious young uh, ministers and readers and students had maybe 20 sources of news and media that we were interested in, that we followed radio stations and newspapers (laughs) and magazines. Right. That sort of stuff. Now you've gone in those 20 years from 20 to 200 to 2000 to 200,000. You you can see on and on and on until every single person has a podcast now and every single person has uh, their social media platforms and every single person is, can live stream more or less their entire lives. Okay. Right. What you've seen is an economy of attention where the only way to grab people's attention is essentially to become increasingly extreme, increasingly strident. Right. So what we're seeing is not something that's unique to the church. It's not something that's unique to the Young Restless Reformed movement. It is common to every single institution in existence that tries to bring people together for a common cause. Mm-hmm. Because we've got to understand that's not what social media does. It does the opposite of that. That is not what, because of social media, that's not what media does. Media, that's not what politicians are trying to do. They are not trying to unify people for common cause. They are trying to, they're trying to divide people and to scare people. Put that all together and you realize the genie is not President Trump. The genie is not a pick your John MacArthur on one side or a Tim Keller on the other side or whatever. That's not the issue. The issue is that we have a media culture that is inherently corrosive to any kind of institutions. And as a result is also inherently corrosive to the kinds of bonds of spiritual allegiance and affection and authority that are intended to be lived out in the local church. That's the problem. That's the genie that you can't put back in the bottle. And that's the problem that we need to be dealing with. The Trump stuff is superficial. This stuff is systemic. Trump is just exposing what was already there. Trump. And so one of the things that we realize is that President Trump and President Biden are the last figures alive, um, not not alive, but alive and active from the broadcast era of American history. Mm -hmm. So why did the Democrats go to President Biden? Well, they went to President Biden as their nominee, one, because they probably rightly concluded he was the only one who could defeat President Trump. Mm -hmm. Number two, why? Because he went back to the era before the smartphone. Um, He was a politician before there was social media. So he had the benefit of having been featured and having name recognition that came from a less fractured time. President Trump, of course, had that benefit 
uh, through reality TV mm-hmm. at the very pinnacle of reality TV uh, with his with his show on NBC, The Apprentice. Right. right. So why are other politicians not able to defeat them despite the fact that they are geriatric? Well, it's because nobody can get any attention. Yeah. Because there's no broadcast economy anymore. So you can conquer 25 different micro fields of small super online supporters. But you can't get any broad like i mean how many people can name a bunch of senators who are running for president you just they don't know who they are exactly so that's the genie is that there just isn't anything drawing people together i mean just think about oh man just think about how many streaming services do i have right amazon prime and netflix and youtube tv and whatever i heard somebody say at one point you know, somebody genius someday is going to say, what if we just put all of these streaming services together <laughs> and we bundled them and there was one charge? You're like, congratulations, you just invented cable television. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> We're co- it's but coming now full it's circle. Just, who's watching the same things now? Yeah. And that's why the NFL is so valuable because nobody's paying attention to the same things anymore. Right. right. Just, everybody is in their own little space with their own little sub-tribes. And we haven't begun to talk about reddit right and all of these corners of the internet yeah i mean look at us we're publishing media you've got two podcasts i've got one where people can just dial in you don't listen to radio anymore i just listen to what i want to listen to yeah can you imagine how quaint it is to be listening to radio and somebody selects the music that you and a bunch of other people who are not you I mean, radio, it wasn't video that killed the radio star. It was right. Spotify, of course. <laughs> and Spotify also basically killed just musicians in general. Yeah, I, mean, I just, we, we're, the, the genie, I keep coming back to the genie is this dual revolution or tri-revolution of ubiquitous internet with social media, with the smartphone. Mm-hmm. That's the genie. And we are still just kind of dipping our toe into what that revolution means. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, I, you know, it feels like I'm looking at uh, the book on my shelf right now, The Tech Wise Family by Andy Crouch. Mm-hmm. Plug one. to the podcast you did with him recently. That was a mm-hmm. phenomenal podcast. Oh, man. Andy's got real, real insight. Yeah. yeah. So for all the listeners here, check out Colin's podcast called Gospel Bound in a recent episode he did with Andy Crouch. I thought it was really, really insightful. But anyway, I'm looking at that book. Shout out to that book. Pick up this book, especially Young Families at the Vine, The Tech Wise Family. And it's like we used to say, you know, what does it mean to engage spiritual disciplines? Well, we read your Bible and you pray and you're generous and you um, might practice fasting and solitude Man, I think to your point, and I fully agree, like one of the top five has to be, how do you think theologically and biblically about technology in in terms of our discipleship, you know? Yeah, well, I think another another book to check out, Wisdom Pyramid by my colleague, Brett McCracken. He's been on the podcast. uh, He was on the podcast like five months ago. Good job. Well, I mean, great book, good perspective. Let me illustrate. I know you've said you guys have a lot of young families in your church. Let me illustrate what that looks like. At one point, my wife and I talked about whether or not we would have a a TV 
in our house. Mm -hmm. And the thought was, well, we grew up in homes where the TV was on nonstop. Right. Nonstop. Yep, me too. And um, Just in the background, right? Yeah, exactly. We, We just didn't want that. We didn't want this sense that life is about coming home from work and plopping down on the couch and watching TV or something like that, another Seinfeld rerun or something right. like that. And um, we just didn't want that culture. And then we had kids and now I'm start stopping to think, man, I, that wasn't even, I, I didn't realize how radical I would have to be to fight back against the poll and the kinds of things that my family was dealing with in terms of television and media are nothing compared to what they're dealing with now. So it's not just the, it's not just the content. It's just the, let me put it this way. I think what young people are being discipled into now is a sense in which their online persona is the real them and their embodied persona is the kind of projected self. Mm. Wow. I think it's a flip from where we've been before of, of course, the real you is the is the you that's face to face with somebody, shoulder to shoulder with somebody. But online is kind of like the experimental you. But I think that's really that's really shifted because of the sense in which we expect our experience of life to be mediated. And so with kids, you have to go so far out of your way to disciple them into simple human interaction right? because of what they're exposed to with iPad, phone, um, television, and things right. like that, that we're not even just talking keeping kids away from bad content, which is, of course, easier than ever before right. to stumble into. Right. Now it's about can you teach them how to engage real human beings? Well, it, it makes sense because the online persona is controllable. Yeah. It's projectable. I mean, it's it's easily manipulated and it's, and it's malleable. And so it's almost like, you know, let's get into real uh, hairy territory here and start talking about some transgender identities. And it's, it's almost like that is a response to the media Mm -hmm. in the sense that you can at any point adopt any sort of self. You can put on a kind of self that totally makes sense in Ready Player One, mm-hmm. uh, that kind of world, but to a world that saw itself as essentially biological, then it didn't make sense. You can't right. do that because there's a givenness to things. Right. But not in media. There's not a givenness to anything. It's a construct your own life, and transgender identity sort of flows straight from that sense that you can construct your own life. Yeah, that's really interesting. The other thing I think about, man, along these lines is is just emotional health. And yeah. as I've gotten older, I mean, <laughs> I didn't realize this until, you know, maybe a decade ago, but like I only have so much bandwidth emotionally. Yeah. And I feel like what's clear biblically is God has entrusted a wife to me and four mm-hmm. kids to me. And I sit here as a a pastor of a church as a primary calling. And it just seems like, man, there's only so much I can bear. And when you give me access to all the world's problems, in addition to maybe observing some people I care about bickering on Facebook or Twitter 
um, it's like there's there is access to more problems or just raw knowledge that my finitude cannot support. Like only yeah. God can support those things. And so when I think about discipleship and technology, I want to say to myself and so many others, like, why are you wasting your emotional energy on these things that you have no control over? Like yeah. you're spending all this money and uh, this emotional money and you can't get it back. Yeah. Well, what I wrote in um, my most recent book, Gospel Bound, Living with Resolute Hope in an Anxious Age, is that we spend a lot of time complaining about things we can't control mm -hmm. using means that are guaranteed to make no difference. Mm -hmm. and, and somehow that becomes a test of faith for people. Are you complaining about the things that I am also complaining about? Because if not, then... I don't want anything to do with you. Mm -hmm. Okay, so are you complaining about things I'm complaining about? And are you employing this means that I'm employing that we both know is guaranteed to accomplish nothing? Just the echo chamber, right? Well, I, I don't even understand. So my thought is, hey, if this is a way to make people anxious and angry and to raise money off them by freaking them out and making yourself look like a guru, then I understand what's happening. But if that, this is about equipping people to live faithfully and fruitfully and to bring meaningful change to the world, starting with their own lives, their families, their neighborhoods, their churches, their communities, then what are we doing here? Totally. I wonder if, Amen. Amen. I mean, you know, Zach, you're, you're a, you're an early adopter with, with a lot of the internet culture that, that I've been a part of. And it's interesting that I think those of us who were exposed early to it are more wary of it in mm -hmm. the same way that the people in Silicon Valley who developed the iPad don't let their kids use it. Amen. Amen. <laughs> There's a sense in which we were the vanguard of excitement of all that we could learn and all that we could see and the relationships that we could build. And then all of a sudden we saw it turn dark and thought, oh, wait a minute. And then I had to shift from a place of thinking, it's good for me as a Christian to know what's happening around the world and to understand what people are saying about me because I need to be humble to be able to be critiqued to all of a sudden oh my gosh, why would I dump that poison into my soul day after day Amen. after day after Amen. day? And it was like, no way. Well, I, I remember like, like when I first got a blog. So I probably started right. my blog in 2005. I was going to say 2003. So yeah, yeah. I mean, you, were, yeah you were real early. 2000, I was just copying my friend Justin who had a cool blog. And at the time, all he was doing was ranting about uh, Senator John Kerry. That was probably 2003. <laughs> But um, yep. 2005, and I remember thinking, oh, there's a comment section. Well, that's kind of cool. Yep. You can interact right. with people, and it was like kind of fun, like someone across the world right. is writing you a comment. And then five years later, it's like, I mean, my, my blog didn't get a lot of comments because of the way it was structured. But just seeing the darkness of what people were willing to say when it felt like it was anonymous or there was no real consequence because it's just a screen. And like, I man, don't this know. is so I don't know what it is. It feels like everybody is drunk online because <laughs> there are no inhibitions it's true i don't know L what it courage. is there's there's something 
Digital just, courage. Yeah, I, I just, I kept thinking over the years with comments, I, we kept thinking things like, maybe this happens because it's anonymous. Yeah. Maybe if we shifted to Facebook where you could see somebody's, and then you realized, oh no, 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 right. that's actually worse. Right. It's, it's like everybody is drunk. Right. There are no inhibitions. Right. It's like, you know, the, the, the internet is like a never ending fifth quarter. Mm-hmm. Um, that's basically what it feels like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me switch gears here, Colin. I, I'm really thankful for this discussion. We've, we've actually talked about this a lot with different um, people and from different angles. And so I'm, I'm glad to talk about technology because I really, really think it's important for discipleship um, in our day and age. But I want to talk about uh, some of the books you've written especially a book that I felt like I lived through. And, and I'd love to hear a little more about um, Young, Restless, and Reformed and why you wrote that. But here's the deal, man. I think there's a lot of people at my church that don't even know what we're talking about. <laughs> sure. I mean, I'm sure probably a majority of them because we don't wave the Calvinist flag. I mean, sure. I, I don't ever even say that word. I just preach the Bible. I'm persuaded as a Calvinist, but... Um, so and I don't I don't know how I mean no offense I'm not sure how many people yeah. are pow, are like scouring the Gospel Coalition website every day you know that's kind of the world that you and I live in yeah or like my church planting friends live in right so what is young restless and reformed for those that don't even know what that means or why you would write a book with that title yeah so the the world that you and I kind of grew up in is a, a pretty strange. Uh, world historically speaking. And that is that in the 1990s into the early 2000s, all of a sudden a lot of young people began turning back to theology that, I mean, historically speaking, would be described as Augustinian, um, going back to the early church and the kind of late Roman era, mm-hmm. continuing on through to the Reformation, Martin Luther, John Calvin, continuing on then through uh, the likes of John Bunyan, Charles Spurgeon uh, in the United States, of course, um, or the colonial America, Jonathan Edwards, the first great awakening, George Whitfield. Mm-hmm. But then this kind of reformed theology, this sense that God is sovereign in all things, working for his glory, electing a people to himself before the beginning of time to believe in him. That was just not popular in the United States in the 18 and 1900s for the most part. It just wasn't popular because it went against this notion of freedom and independence and the individual, the American spirit. And so the fact that toward the end of the 1900s, all of a sudden, a lot of young people like you and me are getting interested in this and following people like John Piper in Minneapolis and reading those books and sharing those books and getting excited about them and going overseas in missions and wanting to spend our lives in, in, uh, in serving God for his glory. That was just a unique phenomenon. And the fact that you would also then have a bunch of churches being planted and not in a kind of traditional robed suit and tie culture, but even Baptist churches planted with, uh, with names like the vine, you know, that, mm. that was just a, that was a unique phenomenon that just was not the case in previous generations. And so I, I wrote about that all the way from uh, South Florida to Seattle, to New York city, to Southern California, uh, to rural South Dakota. 
Yeah. And how this was was happening with with young people all over the place. And so one of the movements or institutions that was birthed out of this movement was the Gospel Coalition and a group that connects Baptist and non-denominational and Presbyterian and Anglican and free churches all within this broadly reformed evangelical tradition. And our co-founders, probably not many people would know Don Carson here, but they would probably know Tim Keller. Right. And so, um, you know, Tim's been a role model for me for a number of years of, of how to bring together um, a, a heart that's warm toward God, uh, revival, I mean, conversion, all that kind of stuff, but also with that reformed biblical theology and orthodoxy, and at the same time, a desire to engage the culture beyond just critiquing the culture. Right, right. And so the Gospel Coalition brings together those emphases and encourages church leaders to follow those around the world. And so, yeah, that's the, I mean, the, the difference between some of the younger people in your church and us is that we saw this and understood how weird it was or how different it was and how unusual it was. But young people growing up today just assumed that this is a major swath of the church because the fact is almost all of the largest seminaries in the world are a part of this movement hmm. from Southern Seminary to Midwestern Seminary. I mean, from Louisville to Kansas City, uh, to Southeastern and North Carolina to Reformed Theological Seminary all over the place. Yeah, and that's also a dramatic shift from the 1990s yeah. as well. So, yeah, that's just the world you're growing up. I mean, people are growing up in now, but it was not that way for us. Yeah. I mean, let me share a little bit of my personal history. Um, so I've talked to my peers and many people say, and I'd love to hear your, your experience as well, just anecdotally. Um, but you know, we were a part of a college ministry that started in 1994 and it, and when I was, I graduated my senior year and then the year after when I was still in town working, like it started with, you know, maybe 25 people in a small classroom at the University of Northern Iowa. And five years later, there's about seven to 800 people. Yeah, right. And it's like, that doesn't happen at the University of Wisconsin today. I'm not yeah. hearing about that a lot on campuses these days. There was a, a once a month Friday night thing that we did called Friday Night Alive, completely student led. Mm hmm. It was almost, I mean, I don't know what revivals were like historically, but that's what it felt yeah. like. It was like. It was. There was no. Yeah, it was. There was no leadership other than these students. We, I, you know, I got up and played some songs. We had a band. Um, we invited a local church pastor to preach. It was very unorganized, but just passionate mm -hmm. worship of God and just this hunger, you know, and. And then fast forward a few years later, early 2000s, college ministry, Iowa City, Iowa, University of Iowa, I was part of a similar thing where there's six, 700 kids sometimes on a Thursday night. Mm -hmm. And I don't hear about that happening, but when I talk like today, but like when I talk to my peers that were in near Milwaukee, they're like, yeah, similar thing was happening in the 90s and 20s. Right. Or I talk about some friends that I knew in Texas it was like this thing was like just surging in Texas in college campuses and and I I don't know but at the same time my friend comes home one day and he's got this book called Desiring God 
And I'm like, what is this? He's like, you got to check this out. This is a guy named John Piper. And I'm like, whatever, you know. And I hated it because I was, you know, default, my default setting because I, you know, I didn't really know my Bible was just um, Arminianism and just, you know, free will, everything. And, and I read his first chapter and I was like, this is challenging, but also, you know, challenging reading, but also challenging theologically. And um, so like, and then I hit the whole, you know, revolution of, 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 of um, you know, understanding reformed theology or what the Bible teaches about how we get saved and God's providence and his sovereignty and election. And it seemed like that was all that people were talking about in our circles. <laughs> and, um, and, and unfortunately, you know, giving John Piper a, a bad name because we were jerks about it and um, bad associations, <laughs> true. you know, and uh, true. so like, I wish I could go back and do a lot of that over. Cause I've, but anyway, it, did you experience the same thing? Like, yeah. So, and I do think you still see some things like this with Salt Company. I think mm-hmm. you see things like this with Breakaway Ministries. So, from Iowa down to Texas, Passion still mm-hmm. packs a lot of people in mm-hmm. Atlanta. Um, but yeah, that's, I mean, you go back to Passion One Day in 2000, mm-hmm. whatever, right. 40,000 yep. students in the middle of a field outside of Memphis. Tennessee that are hearing John Piper talk about how they're never going to retire and they're going to live for God for their whole lives and live for God in God's glory forever. Right. Yeah. It, it, it definitely was a revival. And I do say was because in many ways, that's exactly what, what I hear that that was a, that was a was. And I've spent a lot of time lately um, I, you know, I studied, I did a book on revivals called The God-Sized Vision, came out in 2010, and I, I do a lot of work writing about about Tim Keller and, and his ministry, and one of the things that's fascinating is that when he was a college student at Bucknell in InterVarsity, a similar thing happened, not explicitly reformed, mm-hmm. but it was a similar revival, and then when he went to New York City in 1988-89, there was another revival there that happen. And so revivals don't always look like national things, though I would say this reformed movement was even an international uh, movement. But this, if you go back through a lot of Christian leaders' lives, there is often that kind of experience or moment where God does something collectively. Now, it can only be, sometimes it's just one campus. Sometimes it's, it's 50, 100, whatever campuses there. Um, but that just seems to be something that God seems to do. And he does that often with young people who don't know any better, who aren't weighed down (laughs) with all the Mm -hmm. cares of the world and thinking about all the things they need to be doing instead of just, uh, sitting there and singing to God all night (laughs) and being excited about that and debating predestination. Right. Right. Um, but I also think that healthy Christianity doesn't always live in revival mode, Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's also a time of taking care of kids and cleaning the floor and the cleaning the toilets right. and and just walking with God day by day in his word faithfully and seeking holiness and righteousness. And whatever the story of this revival is or will be, I hope that younger generations who don't know what in the world you and I are talking about right now will be able to look at us as parents, as church leaders or whatnot, 
as not bemoaning these days gone past, but as hopefully setting an example of them of faithfulness yeah. that they themselves can emulate in their own way by God's grace as they, as they grow up and take leadership positions as well. So, and like revivals, there was a, so much good stuff happening and so much mixed up with bad. Right. Right. <laughs> so much pride, arrogance, so much, foolishness. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all happening at the same time. And that's what happens in revivals. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I could go back and just rewind the arrogance that I exhibited <laughs> as a young, um, you know, someone convinced of reformed theology or predestination or whatever, like just rewind all that. I would, you know, shout out. And then to- they gave us the internet platform <laughs> as well. Then they and we said, were off hey, and running. <laughs> d- blog, just go for it. And that, that didn't, that didn't help. <laughs> no, it's true, man. It's true. It's like, um, no matter what, you know, the, the internet can be a, a megaphone for our narcissism, you know, Yeah. which is, which is sad, but man, let me ask you this. What, the Gospel Coalition, again, for those that don't know, um, just define that, and and then what do you see as the future of where the Gospel Coalition wants to head? So, yeah, the easiest way to understand the Gospel Coalition is we bring church leaders, well, think about it this way, we're like a think tank for church leaders. Yeah. So. So pastors, uh, you guys might think that uh, listening that that Zach has all the greatest ideas in the world and shares them with you guys. You're so lucky every week to hear that. I hope that's what you think. Right, right. But Zach knows better that ultimately that that any wisdom comes from God, but also that it comes from diligently reading good books. It comes from... Uh, articles that help him understand his experience that mm-hmm. that help train him in this work. I mean, pastors need ongoing life training and they need encouragement from other people who understand their vocation and their calling. Yeah. So the Gospel Coalition is that way. Our job is to try to help your pastor, and that, and in helping your pastor to help your other church leaders as well to help your elders, mm-hmm. and then hopefully through them and to you listening out there, we also are then able to help you in things like parenting and technology and how do I think about this world event that's happening right, out there? Right. So that's what we do at thegospelcoalition.org through our podcasts and through our conferences, through our online publishing, and things like that. We just want to get good content out there that will help people know that they're not alone. Yeah. God is with them. God's working. And here's how we can do that uh, faithfully. I'll just give you, I mean, one, one way to connect this back to the revival uh, story. This is what I was trying to do in this new, um, new gospel bound book. But one of the things Jonathan Edwards said all the way back in the first great awakening is that God uses stories of revival in one place to be able to stir people in another place to pray for the same thing to happen there. Hmm. And if he could do that, and he it would inspire Jonathan Edwards to start the first religious periodical in American history, 1743, called The Christian History. If God could use that periodical in 1743 to do that, just imagine what he is doing right now with the internet. Amen. To do that. Amen. And so we talk about all the negatives, but that's the positive. And right. so at any given time, I'm tracking with leaders around the world, seeing what God's doing and helping to share those stories. And so that's a, a basic element of the Gospel Coalition. So you ask where we're, where we're going. Um, I would say that at a time when 
the loudest voices are the ones that are encouraging us to turn against each other that are convincing us that every single thing that happens in the news is the worst thing ever and that we need to freak out about it and we need to find somebody to blame is to try to call back call people back to those basic gospel principles and remind people that what we share together in Christ united together to him and through him is more important than what we disagree about with culture and politics. And in fact, that same gospel that unites us to Christ is the same gospel that's the only means by which we can actually see lasting change and justice being done here on earth as it is in heaven. So that's the message we're going to continue to proclaim. We're going to continue to plant that flag and hope that that's it's really popular. But I think about our, our friend Justin Taylor at Crossway and books. And years ago, he said something really meaningful to me. He said, you know, we're going to publish books that say the same things, whether they're popular or not, mm-hmm. in season and out of season. Mm-hmm. And that's the way I think about the Gospel Coalition is that we're going to say the same things that Jesus Christ is the only answer to our problem and the world's problems. Right. We're just going to keep saying that, whether or not people agree with us or not. Right. Right. We're going to be the gospel coalition, whether or not people are excited about the gospel or whether or not they want to be a part of a coalition. Right. <laughs> because yeah. we believe that we are stronger together mm-hmm. and our strength comes from focusing on the gospel. So we're going to keep inviting people to do that from churches all over the world, whatever kind of churches those look like. And um, hopefully God will bless that work. And, um, you know, that's in season and out. That's what we'll keep doing. Let me ask a hard question, though. We just got done talking about the inherent dangers of the Internet and how the Internet in some ways is structured to turn us against each other. Yep. So I'm hearing that on the one hand. On the other hand, Mm -hmm. we're using the Internet as a platform that's primary for the gospel coalition ministry. Sure. So is there an inherent contradiction there? There can be. Here's the difference. So for a lot of people you're listening out there and the people that you're following on the internet, they make their living off convincing you that being online is where you need to be Mm -hmm. and that engaging in their stuff is the, I mean, internet, I mean, that, that's kind of like the thing to do. So your, your favorite YouTube person, I mean, the, the goal of YouTube, that's why they always, or Netflix is they always give you that next video. What's next? What's next? What's next? Okay. Here's the what's next for the gospel coalition. Go love your kids. Mm-hmm. Go talk to your neighbor about Jesus. Amen. Go serve your church. Here's a good book. Get away from the internet and read this book. That's our what's next at the Amen. Gospel Coalition. Amen. So that's what's different. People are going to find this stuff online. Yep. People are going to be looking online. On, uh, internet is a tremendous resource that is clearly intended by God in, for his glory, for us to be able to use to build up the church. There's Amen. no doubt about that. Every new technology has positives and negatives. Amen. But our what's next is get out there and do this in person. Yeah, I love it. I love it. So Colin, tell us about your latest book. Gospel Bound, like where did that come from? Um, you co-wrote that with, I forget her name, please tell us her Sarah name. Sarah Zylstra. Yep, you co-wrote that with her. Mm-hmm. Tell us about it. Where, where did it come from? Why'd you write it? Yeah, Sarah's a, Sarah's a native of uh, Northeast Iowa. Um, so we, 
It's really the stuff that we're talking about here. It's that people, a lot of people feel anxious and afraid right now, and they think it's because of circumstances. Mm -hmm. They think it's because the world's getting worse and worse. What if I told you it's not because the world is getting worse and worse, but because people make a lot of money off you by convincing you that it's getting worse and worse. Amen. It's in their interest. It's not in your interest. What if then we told you a different story that as we talk to Christians around the world, what we see is them like Johnny Erickson Tata suffering with joy. We see them like Rosaria Butterfield showing hospitality, even to the meth dealer who's next door. Uh, we, we see them uh, giving, sending away their best, like J.D. Greer, training up incredible numbers of missionaries and church planters. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I mean, on and on and on. What if we told you that God is working in all of those different ways right now, ways that you're not going to see in mainstream media, and it, what would it do for your faith if you understand that if you understood that's what God's doing and that's more real to you than whatever you're seeing with this presidential election or whatever you're you know that we just had or whatever you're seeing on CNN or Fox or or wherever not that none of those things matter um, but that they are giving us a skewed perspective right. on things so the book is full of um, Encouragements from the book of Romans, specifically, of how to walk in faith, how to obey the truth, as uh, Paul talks about in Romans 2, and especially culminating in Romans 12, how we overcome evil with good. Mm-hmm. That's what we're aiming for. So we've got a book full of Christians who are overcoming evil with good. And so if, you, um, if you're the kind of person who actually wants to be encouraged and equipped to put your faith into practice, you're going to love this book. If you're the kind of Christian who really likes to be angry at people and, and, you know, then you're just not going to like this book. But the good news for you is that there are most books are doing that. So you can find a lot of other books that do that. (laughs) Yeah. So is this, is this a book of storytelling? Yeah, it's mostly stories. So it's all, it's all, it's, it's built around these eight characteristics of gospel bound Christians. And I've already shared some of those, how they love their enemies, how they Mm -hmm. care for the weak, how they uh, set another seat at the table. They show hospitality. They um, embrace the future um, instead of living in nostalgia or a kind of progressive utopian delusion. So it's all these different ways that Christians can live by faith in this day and, that, and with illustrations to show that they are living this way today. Um, so, yeah, it's mostly stories. And um, because I think ultimately it's just, man, that's what brings change. I mean, you, you, you started out by asking, what's my story mm-hmm. and how did I come to Christ? I mean, we all know as evangelicals that story changes people because we – we follow a, a, you know, we follow the gospel story, but then on top of that, we also, um, that's why we put people up to talk, share their testimonies Amen, amen. all the time. It brings encouragement and gives us a model for what God's doing. So do you still use the word evangelical? Uh, yeah, but I mean, I, I don't know if I would in Madison, Wisconsin. Exactly. Um, I and mean, that's what I say. <laughs> so, when pe- people ask me, I'll say, well, it depends on what you mean by that. 
Yeah. And you know that, unfortunately, that means that's the same thing with Christian. It's the same thing with Reformed. It's the same thing with Calvinist. Sure. Ultimately, um, people, I, I, I've just, I'm working on, I was working on an article this afternoon about why it was at Cornell University, so pretty similar to Wisconsin and uh, Madison. And I, and I asked them, what do people think about when they think about Christians? And the students said, Westboro Baptist Church. Wow. And I said, are you kidding me? So the world's largest religion just transformed the world, invented the entire concept of the West, right. is an overgrown family cult in Topeka, Kansas. That's just that's just crazy to me. Right. Um, and so that's just Christianity, that let alone evangelical Christianity sure. there. So so of course there's just gonna be a lot of confusion. And I don't really know how to how to fight that battle except to ask clarifying questions like, okay, what do you mean by that? Because if you mean I am a white person who votes Republican. Well, that may or may not be true, <laughs> right, right. but that's how the media essentially define evangelical as a white person who votes Republican. So right. yeah, that creates a lot of confusion. Yeah. Well, I think to answer your question, like, like the way we combat that is I think by being Christians in public. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Like we have neighbors at our old house before we moved, that would be your classic Madison progressive liberal and i'm not even talking about their faith i'm just thinking their politics right right and but we got to be really good friends and um and they didn't know anybody that were christians until they met us you know in terms of like how we express none of them probably knew some catholics or, or whatever but in terms of what we're talking about in terms of like um how we practice our faith at the vine or many churches in acts 29 or gospel coalition and so I think when when you ask that question to them, they're gonna they're not gonna say Westboro Baptist. They're gonna say, "Well, we met Zach and Kim, and we're right. friends with them, and I, you know, we might disagree, and we've talked about this. Like, you know, we have a, right. a sexual ethic that you probably think is crazy. I mean, can we still be friends?" Um, and the answer is yes, thankfully with them. But we were just a Christian in public with them, right? You know, and I think that's part of how we rewrite that narrative. Well, I think for just for members of, of the Vine here listening, you don't, to be able to talk about the gospel with your neighbors, to be able to love them, you don't actually, you don't have to know the answers to all the theological questions. You don't have to know all of the apologetic responses to everything. Um, you really just have to ask the question of, how do I love this person? How's, mm-hmm. how's God calling me to love this person? And I don't mean in the way that we talk about so much today in this culture of just essentially affirming them in every single thing that they do. I, I just mean tangibly, how do you love them? How do you take an interest in them? Exactly. How do you engage in their lives? How do you go out of your way to try to consider them? If you just do those kinds of things, those kinds of things are so rare That's right. in our culture That's in right. general. That's right. That, People notice that. They notice that you're different. Gives you an opportunity to testify explicitly to Christ. And so, yeah, I, I, we're not gonna we're not gonna get ourselves out of the challenge that we have of of our reputation through some sort of mass media campaign. It right. would not be possible <laughs> no. in this media environment for what I just talked about. It'd be cost prohibitive, if nothing else. Right. It's gonna happen when Christians simply resolve by the power of God 
to live out their faith in public yeah. in distinctive ways. So mm-hmm. it's not going to be because Tim Keller has an amazing book or an amazing sermon series or something like that, though that can be very useful Amen. to share with somebody, but it's going to be because they know you and they trust you to be able to share that sermon with Amen. them, uh, send them that MP3 or, or, or they, they trust you to say, okay, if I should read this book, then maybe, maybe that, maybe I will. Yeah. It's not going to be because they stumble across a Facebook ad. Right. Or, or, yeah, I've never read the Bible before. Maybe I'm open to reading the Bible with somebody. Yeah, just start. Yeah, Forget forget other books you got to get. Just start with the Bible. Sure. I mean, just start with the Gospel of Mark. Exactly. And, and, go, from, and go from there. Exactly. Um, but it's amazing what happens when you just do the simple things and then you just ask. Yep. It, it's not that more, com- it's not more complicated than that. Just do simple things to love people and then just have the guts to ask. Amen. We just recorded a podcast with our staff this morning and we were talking about exactly that. And if we just start with prayer, and I'll say it again because I think it's so important. We just start with prayer that God yeah. would just actually birth in my heart a, just a genuine love for people, not an evangelistic project so that yeah. ultimately it's about me and having some notches on my belt to affirm my Christian faith or something but that I can actually love people genuinely. And I know that apart from God's spirit in me, that's not happening. I'm selfish right. by nature. Right. And, and I'm scared. That, yeah. yeah. And fearful. Exactly. And, um, and just praying like, Lord, would you give me a genuine love for these people? And it's amazing. You know, I think by faith, he loves to answer that prayer request. And I've seen in my 45 years that like, that's, that's something he loves to answer. Maybe not in the timetable that I want, but he does answer it. And um, and we step out in faith, you know, when he does. So, Amen. Well, Colin, man, it's you've given us an hour of your time. I really, really <laughs> appreciate it. Um, I want to I want to say thank you for you know all the years of faithfulness that I've seen from you and the things that you published and your books and podcasts and blog posts and um, I know I've really whether you wrote it or not, your fingerprints are on a lot of things. And um, so I'm really thankful. Uh, a lot of Gospel Coalition resources have blessed our church for 11 years now. And so just know that there's a, a pocket of folks in, in Madison, Wisconsin, that are thankful for you and your leadership and the things that you've written and the way that you lead. And so thanks for coming on the, the podcast. Again, his latest book is Gospel Bound and the podcast by the same name, right? Mm-hmm. Same name, yeah. Same concept. It's all about living with resolute hope in an anxious age. How do we? How can we be steadfast in truth and love, no matter what happens around us? Yeah, yeah. I, I recommend it highly, and uh, I really appreciate you coming on, bud. Thanks, Zach.